You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. Childhood obesity is growing exponentially. The number of overweight children has increased by 45% since 1984. With me today is Dr. Don P. Wilson, a pediatric endocrinologist and chair of pediatrics at Texas A&M Health Science Center College of Medicine to discuss how the prevalence of overweight children is impacting their health. Dr. Wilson, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'd like to start by just having you answer, is measuring obesity in children different than in adults? Somewhat. Now, we're dealing with a population that's growing and maturing, so... We have to adjust our thinking a little bit in terms of that dynamic. So most of the time we present information relative to a percentile rather than an absolute number. Now, in the adult world, we use BMIs commonly, 30 and above, 40 and above for morbid obesity, but in children we usually have to refer to a chart that's gender-specific and age-specific. So it seems that... You know, our genes have not changed that much, and obviously our environment has. Is it safe to say that if our grandparents wouldn't recognize the ingredients on a food product, we should probably not consider it food and not give it to our kids? (laughs) Well, it's a complex question in terms of what's causing or what's fueling this environment. A simple answer to your question is if you have a propensity, a genetic propensity to have obesity or obesity-related complications like cardiovascular disease or diabetes, You can always make a bad situation worse. You can make it worse by becoming sedentary. You can make it worse by having a very poor diet. Unfortunately, if you look around our current environment, that's pretty much what we've surrounded ourselves with, things that make our lives easier, that decrease physical exertion, and then most of our foods are very high in content with uh, sugar or fats. So you're in the trenches, obviously. You're, You're seeing this daily. Are you overwhelmed, and how do you even begin to make an impact? Yeah, pretty much. You know, that's one of the difficult tasks with trying to encourage our primary care colleagues to bring this topic up during relatively brief encounters with well children checkups or well child checkups because it takes a lot of time and energy to, to try to motivate people. And in the vast majority of people we see, the entire family needs to be involved in that mm-hmm. because most of them are all involved to some degree. But they also, the kids need the encouragement of the parents. They also, the parents need to be good role models for children. So what can a primary care provider do in that three minutes he has to focus at the end of the visit? What can he say to get through to the parents when the parents are obviously not caring about their weight? Well, to their benefit uh, and credit, and I don't think they can solve the obesity problem in their offices. I think there's probably three categories of children that I see commonly in my practice, and that is the children who are relatively young at the present time are not yet born, and the opportunity is there for prevention. If you go to the other extreme, we know the data in terms of tracking. If you look at the children who are currently obese, uh, the vast majority of those kids are going to be obese, and they're going to have the same risk factors as an adolescent as they do now. So I'm not conceding that group, but I'm saying it's going to be a much harder task to get those kids turned around. And the middle group is the one that I think deserves the time and attention because there's an opportunity to get those kids refocused. But it's going to take more than just the exam room discussion. It's going to take a community to get involved, community activities, community education. And to some degree, there may have to be legislation, as, they're already, as you're already seeing. Dr. Wilson, what kind of blood work are you seeing regularly in obese kids that is shocking to you? 
for the last maybe 10 years or so, we've actually taken a little bit more aggressive approach to screening children. You may know the current recommendations have to do, or at least the historic recommendations had to do with listening to family histories and assessing risk and so forth. But it became apparent to us from just the children referred to our endocrine clinic that a lot of these kids who have BMIs over 95 percentile really need to be screened. So it's not uncommon that you see uh, you know, cholesterol levels that are in the 200s, occasionally 300s, but certainly up in the 200 levels. And then the thing I think primary care physicians need to understand is that the most common thing you're going to see in that adolescent obese group is going to be high triglycerides and low HDL. What that's not telling you is that the HDL has been altered and so has the LDL. So the chemists talk about small, dense LDL particles. It means that they're more atherogenic. So we call that particular finding where you have high triglycerides and low HDL atherogenic dyslipidemia. It's a good handle because it's telling you that pathologically that's going to play out over time. But we tend to ignore that because we always sort of say, well, that's just related to the child's weight. If we can get them to lose weight, then that'll improve. But that may or may not be true because the weight loss thing is a real problem. If you take that patient with that triad that you discussed and you put them on a virtually carbohydrate-free diet, will you see those numbers correct without putting them on any sort of lipid medicines? There's a good chance, actually, you see significant improvement. Now, whether it entirely go away or not, I don't know, because I think you have to do a little more global assessment. For example, familial hypercholesterolemia, it's very common. So it's likely, in my mind, that you're going to have somebody who's got both familial hypercholesterolemia, i.e. reduced LDL receptors, plus obesity. Or they may actually be pre-diabetic or have a family history of predisposition for diabetes. So I think it's not a simple answer, but the answer is it significantly will improve. The other thing is you start looking at these kids, you'll find a fair number of them who have altered liver function studies. If you do any kind of imaging study, you'll find a lot of these kids have fatty livers and so forth. There's a kind of a um, snowball effect here after a while. The, the disappointing part is those, what you said was true. Lifestyle intervention is absolutely the best thing to do and the most effective and safe thing to do. That's been demonstrated many, many times. The problem is that we haven't been able to effectively implement that with any degree of success. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill. My guest today is Dr. Don P. Wilson. He is the chair of pediatrics at Texas A&M Health Science Center College of Medicine, and we're talking about uh, the dangers of childhood obesity. Dr. Wilson, what are the current guidelines for lipids, and do you think they need to be changed or revised, or did that just happen? Well, actually, this just happened because those guidelines were initiated with the uh, INSEP guidelines back in 1994, and so a lot of things have changed since that time. For example, new data now suggests that there should be more emphasis on the negative effects of things like excess intakes of saturated fatty acids, trans fats, cholesterol. That information in children wasn't really available many years ago. Uh, also, what you alluded, and that is the excess intake of carbohydrates. So if we focus or have families focus on decreasing fat in diet, they almost always replace that by carbohydrate. Recall that carbohydrate also gets stored as fat, and so mm -hmm. there's kind of a vicious cycle there. And then more recent data suggests that there is need to probably step back and look at the efficacy, but certainly examine the safety of uh, lipid-lowering medications in children. The older guidelines suggest that there was a very targeted population, and we still believe that, with kids who have FH, for example. Those started at age 10 and above. Now we know that it's relatively safe to do that in kids eight years of age and older. 
but we broaden the definition now from what you said uh, to include kids that are other risk categories. For example, those who are clearly overweight or obese, kids who have prediabetes or metabolic syndrome, kids who may need to be treated with HIV drugs that increase lipid levels, some are post-transplant patients, etc. Well, you know, back to the prescribing of, of medication for someone who's eight years old. I find in my practice when when I give any medication, I'm, I'm kind of enabling that patient to really not make any changes because they believe or they have a false sense of security somehow that this medicine is sufficient and will decrease their risk of future events. No, it's a very good statement because some of our colleagues basically say the same thing. We don't want to make it easier, sort of let them off the hook, so to speak, to do the right thing, which is lifestyle interventions and healthy lifestyles. So that needs to be ongoing. But despite our efforts, you know, the, the obesity thing has kind of gotten away from us over the last 15 or 20 years. So we need better strategies to do that. But I said you know, earlier we need help to do that from the community and from the federal government, anybody else that can jump in here. Well, what would you like the government to do? How, how do you think that they could help the problem? You know, they've started that effort by, you know, first of all, legislating that you have to have food labels that tell people what they're eating. Those food labels need to be truthful. So as they started cleaning that up and then making people aware of trans fats and then some, some admonitions that you need to get take trans fats out of the foods. state of Texas, for example, we've had major initiatives, as have other states, where they've had to mandate, if you will, the nutritional value of school lunch programs. Now, it's unfortunate they have to mandate that, but it wasn't going to happen in the absence of someone literally having to write out the rules for them. Well, what about our government getting involved and not subsidizing our corn farmers anymore and making high fructose corn syrup illegal? Does our body do something differently when it sees high fructose corn syrup than regular sugar? It seems like it does. There's some literature that suggests that, you know, on both sides of those arguments. So I, I don't know that I can tell you one way or the other whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, but I think most of us would agree that all things in moderation. The problem is that a lot of kids are being excessively inundated with fructose, high sugar cereals and fruit drinks. You know, one of the simple things you can do in your office, for example, is just take a history about liquid consumption. Uh, a lot of kids are drinking a lot of soft drinks. They justify that by drinking sports drinks because they're in athletics. And the other thing you, you can pick up pretty quick in young kids is they're being given juice. And mothers are sort of on the impression that juice is good for them, but not to the quantities that they're being given. The other thing that happens, a lot of kids, and particularly adolescent males in our experience, are drinking a lot of milk. Well, again, they're told that milk is good for them. It's a source of protein and so mm -hmm. forth and so on, but not in the quantities, again, that these kids are consuming. Well, you know, you brought up milk, and I always think of stuff I learned in my early days of lipidology was the, the Maasai tribe in Africa where they live on meat and milk, and they have no coronary artery disease whatsoever because they do this thing called exercise. They are hunter-gatherers, and if we went back to that type of lifestyle, all of our problems would kind of disappear. Well, no, it's interesting as you bring that example, because I was in Tanzania a year or so ago, and as I saw these folks, they walk incredible distances, herd cattle, if you will, but they have no means of transportation except their feet. And young kids think of nothing, you know, walking several miles just to water, water those cattle. But, you know, similar things used to happen in this country. Kids used to walk to school or ride their bicycles play in the backyard and so forth. A lot of that has disappeared. Yeah, the playing in the backyards, I don't know what's happened to that. I don't know why we're such a fearful society. Well, again, you know, that's, that's an opportunity for communities to provide safe havens for children to come together and play. But they may have to create, as we did you know, years ago, opportunities, playgrounds, recreational sporting activities, clubs, so forth for the kids.
Do you see any tipping point occurring? I mean, is this just continuing to spiral upwards, or are we making any impact? Well, you know, the recent data looking at in Haines, for example, has suggested that some of the lipid levels have come down several, maybe 8 to 10 points. So that's encouraging that things have leveled off a little bit. I suspect the answer is that it, I don't know whether it's still going up or not, but we'll reach a point where people are much more informed, and then we'll start to turn this thing around. You know, I was one of the skeptical ones about smoking in this country, but we've seem to, with everybody's help, try to get people aware of the fact that smoking is dangerous. Passive smoking is dangerous to their children. Now, have we eliminated the problem entirely? No. Uh, But I think there are a lot of folks who have benefited from that education program. Well, on that note, Dr. Don P. Wilson of Texas A&M, thank you very much for coming on Lipid Luminations. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals.